0: All right, as you know, we're going through the book of Acts. We are uh, on our sixth week, I think, going into chapter five. And if you heard the reading um, tonight, you can guess how excited I am about this topic. One of my favorite passages of scripture. If it were possible to skip this one, it's going to be all night like this. If it were possible to skip this one, I would. But we cannot, so we're going to deal with it, see what we find. Um, First, let's recap. Uh, Beginning of the book, Jesus uh, kind of commissions his apostles, um, sends them out as heralds uh, to announce the enthroning of the king. He uh, kind of follows an inaugural process, and he takes the throne and he sends out the witnesses to tell the kingdom that the king is on the throne, that all is well. Um, He tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And they all go and wait. And then 50 days after Passover, uh, at the first festival of first fruits, when Jerusalem is packed with outsiders, the Holy Spirit falls on the upper room on the apostles, and you have this kind of big explosive moment. Peter comes out and preaches uh, to the crowds that have gathered, and 3,000 people get saved. And then Luke immediately tells us, you know, that the that they start falling into church rhythms. He says they met house to house in the temple. They were sharing their things. Like almost immediately they they kind of fall into a rhythm. Nobody just got saved and went now what do we do? Like they just they just met together and they were taught and they broke bread together and and then sometime after Peter and John uh, are going to temple and they pass a beggar and they, he's crippled and he uh they see something in him and they heal him which causes quite a stir. Uh, they wind up with another crowd. They preach 5,000 people get saved this time. And they finally kind of break that barrier where the powers that be recognized. There's something going on here. And so they um, they bring them in and there's a bit of a trial before the Sanhedrin. And they threaten them and tell them not to preach anymore. And uh, Peter and John respond in boldness and say, we have to tell what we've seen and uh, and so they further threaten them and Peter and John go back to their people. They share their concerns. They share their uh, anxiety, I guess you would say. And then they, uh, they pray that not that God would, um, you know, eliminate the threat. Not that God would, uh, you know, move them to a different location. Not even that God would put their candidate in office. But they just prayed that they would be bold to continue to do what they needed to do. And so the apostles did that. So they went out doing good, healing and uh, doing signs and wonders and literally changing the kingdom. And then... Uh, then Luke goes into another, right, immediately after this, goes into another thing. And this time he gets a little more specific and he talks about how people were selling things they had and contributing and that nobody had any lack or need. That everybody's needs were met because of the response of the church. And then we get into today's story, which kind of goes along with that. Well, we've also been following this kind of parallel story with the birth of Israel. Um, some of the things they went through as as we know that Jesus hung on the cross at Passover. Um, it was actually a Passover meal, was the Last Supper. And then 50 days later, you've got the people of Israel gathered around Sinai, and the Lord shows up in fire and noise and shakes the mountain and sends, his, uh, sends the Ten Commandments through Moses. Um, and then 50 days after Jesus' death, we've got the apostles in the upper room. Again, God shows up in fire and noise and, and places His Spirit within His church. And then you've got the spies... Who um, immediately went into the land to spy it out to see, and they're threatened by bigger people, walled cities, um, all of this, uh, um, all of this threat, and they uh, they responded with fear. And we have almost the same thing happen in the Book of Acts. They, the apostles are taken before the Sanhedrin again, threatened by a more powerful. Uh, entity and they in turn instead responded with boldness in that story. And then last week we talked about how one of the primary themes in that Exodus story was provision, was finding ways for everybody to get fed. They were uh, some of the main stories were the manna and the quail and the water in the wilderness, and that you know it, it, it used the exact words that it, that everybody's needs were met, that there was no lack among the people. And we had the kind of the same story last week with the church's response, and we actually have another one today. One of the very next stories was the story of Achan. I don't know how many of you remember the story of Achan, but everything is going really well for Jerusalem. Uh, the 40 years um, in the wilderness is over. That generation that voted not to go into the promised land because they were scared have all died off. We have a young generation. They're excited. They're believing God's going to take them into uh, the promised land. God answers with this awesome miracle. He parts the Jordan River and they're able to pass through the Jordan on dry ground. And so God is active. The people are active. Good things are happening. And they bump into this huge walled city called Jericho. And there's absolutely, it's impenetrable. And so God does a miracle. Um, he gives them some absolutely crazy things to do and they do it and it works. The city falls. Um, and there was only one rule when they conquered Jericho. And that was that we take no spoils from this. Um, and I think what God was trying to do was spoils were a way to make money uh, back then. The, the nations went to war for the, for the express purpose of, of making money. It was almost like harvest season. You went to war, you won, you spoiled the nation you conquered and you brought back the riches. This is how these kingdoms back then made their money. And God was telling Israel, we're doing, we're doing something different. This isn't about... Conquering Jericho so we can get rich. This isn't about plundering them. This is about uh, moving into a space and a land where God can do what He wants to do with you. And so He makes this command: we take no spoils. Everything, everything stays. Nothing. Uh, we're not doing this for the wealth, which was unusual for the day. This is why warriors fought back then was for the wealth. And so uh, they 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 beat Jericho easily, and the next town they come up against is Ai, um, spelled A-I, um, and it's a small town, Joshua doesn't even think he needs to spend, send the whole army, he breaks off enough guys Says go, you know, conquer that town, and, uh, and all should be good, and they go down, and they get their butts kicked, and, uh, and Joshua, because God has been with him up to this point, he has no idea what's happened, and so he goes to God, and he's like, why did, what happened, we just lost to a nobody, to like this little tiny town, and God says there's sin in the camp, and so, uh, so they pull everybody out, and they they have this way of basically casting lots to find out which tribe it came from. They find out which tribe, which family, from which tribe, which guy, and they, and they come down to Achan, and they ask Achan what he did, and um, and they find out that he kept some spoils. And the similarities between these two stories are. The thing that really um, is interesting is this, this funny confrontation that happens at the, in both stories at the end. And that's what we're going to actually kind of read tonight. So from the book of Judges, it says, Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord of Israel and make confession to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I've done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. So you got Joshua uh, confronting Achan uh, and and finding out this sin. Then in Acts we've got Peter almost doing the same thing. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived to do this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So we've got really kind of our first, like, sin in the camp story on both parts. Like, we've got really our first, like, Everything's going great. Momentum is good. Things are happening. And it's not outside pressure that gets to them. It's inside pressure on both on both stories. But the the biggest similarity is the severity of the consequences of these kind of seemingly small infractions. Uh, like I say, in, in the days of Joshua, what Achan does was kind of expected. That's what you did. I mean, and so they did have a command in this sense. They did have God saying, we're not going to spoil this town. But really what he did was pretty normal. But the, the punishment in both stories is pretty brutal. In Judges, it says, this is actually all in uh, Joshua, not Judges. I don't know why I keep saying that. Um, then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkey, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had and brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And then in Acts it says, then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all who heard these things. And the young men also arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And then with Sapphira, it says, and Peter said, how is it you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her with her husband. So we've got these two acts, these, these two situations where these seemingly small infractions lead to this gigantic punishment. And the one thing, the one major difference that I do like in these two stories is uh, in the story in Joshua, it's the the people are the ones who do the killing. And, I, and the, the difference that I like in Acts is that um, God seems to take that on his own shoulders in this story. He doesn't ask the people to shed blood. He... he when he decides to do it, he does it. But the real thing that's going on here, the, this, this kind of ex, the extreme nature of both these stories brings up our tension point. And this is a big one that uh, that we're going to dig into a little bit. Holiness, God's separateness, his sinlessness, his, um, his distinction. From really humanity, his his glory almost uh, is a major theme in the scripture. His almost intolerance for sin. He and and in the Bible it chooses metaphors like a consuming fire that God is like this consuming fire that just it almost burns up um, anything in its presence. There's a that story where Moses asked God, "Can I see your glory?" And Moses decides he's going to show it to him, but he says, I can't, you can't look frontally at my glory. It would burn you up. Um, he said, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by. And you can just kind of see my residual holiness as it passes, like because the, the full thing is, is too much. And so the, the Bible kind of speaks of holiness as God's absolute intolerance to sin, his almost his inability to. To, to be in the presence of sin, his separateness from us, from it. And he expects us to be the same. It says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So we're supposed to be holy people, set apart people, separate people, distinct people. And this speaks of our personal sins murder, lying, stealing. It also speaks of, of our. Our participation in systemic sins, racism and and investing in systems that hurt people and oppress people. And we're culpable for those things like we're part of those part of those systems when we use and and invest in those systems falls on us. And we're supposed to be distinct and holy from that. God says that he's different. So we're supposed to be different but we have a tension because we're also called to be people of grace. And this is the this is where the rub happens. Grace is the ability to love the unlovable. It is by definition unmerited favor. So it's 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 favor or or preference or blessing or or honor almost something that's not worthy of any of those things. Something that that falls short of all those things. If it has to be undeserved versus not grace. If you deserve it, then it's just the, the 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 reward for what you did. It's just it's it's equal. But when you absolutely don't deserve it and you get it, then it's grace. And one of God's kind of core essential characteristics is his love. And when he loves something that's unlovable, when he loves something that's broken and sinful and unholy, he does it through his grace. So we're told over and over again that this is how God reacts to us in Christ, is by his grace, that we absolutely don't deserve it, but, uh, but he loves us anyway, and he calls us to do the same. He says, therefore be merciful just as your father is merciful. So we don't dish out what's deserved, we show grace. And this is one of the strongest tensions in the, in the Christian faith. One of those things we always wrestle with. We're supposed to be people of holiness. We're also supposed to be people of absolute grace and acceptance. And the fulcrum at the center of this tension, which I think is really the center of most of the tensions we live in as Christians, is the cross. It's the cross. This is the place where grace and holiness meet. This is the place where both can exist perfect grace, and perfect holiness at the same time. Romans 8 puts it this way, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness or His holiness. Because in His forbearance, God passed over sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time His righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we find out that we're, we've are we all sinned. We're all sinners. Not a single one of us is worthy of God's love and acceptance. And so God as a holy being can't just wink at sin and say it's no big deal. He can't just say, you know, whatever. It's not, you know, I love you more than that. Come on in, whatever. That would offend this essential part of his character, which is holiness. And a lot of us would, would prefer that. Like we, just, like, we don't like talking about sin. We don't, like, we don't like the subject. And so we prefer to focus on God's grace and God's love and God's mercy. But if that were to happen in, like, a human judge, let's say, a human magistrate, that would offend us. If a judge, if, if, if someone who did something terrible came into a human judge's court and he was like, ah, it's no big deal. I understand you're sorry. Go on. No big deal. And we saw that happen, we would be outraged. We would say, no, that's not right. You're a judge. You're supposed to call for justice. And so, and when we see this happen, when we see, you know, oppression happening and we see things in our culture that happen when there's supposed to be somebody to say, no, that's, you can't overlook that. That was wrong what you did. And there needs to be a reckoning. Like we expect it in a human sense. So why would we expect any less of our God? There has to be a reckoning. There has to be a payment. It would it would it would somehow offend God's essential nature if he were to just overlook it. No big deal. And yet the Bible also says God is love. And it would also offend his essential nature of a loving of a loving being who is who existed eternally in in love within the triune Godhead. And something in his essential nature would also have to be broken to just say, I'm sorry, you sinned, I'm done with you. I'm, I'm finished, I've, get away from me. Like that, that would also offend God's essential nature. And so then we have the cross. And, and it says where he can be just, he can be holy, he can say there has to be a reckoning, there has to be a payment for sin, and he can be the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. He can also be loving and graceful. So the cross is the place where both can happen, where the holiness of God can it coexist with the love of God in Christ. This is why we this is this is why we always go back to the cross. At the cross there is no there is no good Christian, bad Christian, there is no white hat, black hat, you know, good guy, bad guy. We're all bad guys. And Jesus is the one good guy. So are we supposed to be a people of holiness or a people of grace? Yes. Yes, we are. Let's get into tonight's passage. We're going to double back, and it's not going to take long. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came on all those who heard these things. And the young men also wrapped, arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came on all the church and upon all who heard these things. To which we say, duh. Yeah, that would be a spooky story. And and we're left with this question of why. Like, there's several directions we could take this passage. We could, you know, we could use it like a children's bedtime story, you know, like with a moral, like, see, don't lie to God. He'll strike you dead. You know, we we can take this story that way. And some do. We can make it about money. We can talk about how seriously God takes money and financial openness. We could do that. But as I looked in this and I was digging for the real offense, what's the real sin here? And I don't think it's money because Peter even says, was it not yours? You, you didn't have to do that. Like, in, and after you sold it, when the money totally in your control, like you didn't have to bring anything if you didn't want to like, We established last week, this was kind of a free will, just an explosion of generosity of the church. This is not a command. It never was commanded. And Luke, at the end of the last passage, if you think about it, Luke, he he kind of points out Barnabas. I think what he was saying was that this, this wasn't like everybody wasn't doing this. This wasn't just an automatic big commune Were to be part of it you had to bring everything. Because he names out Barnabas on purpose. He's like, and some of the people sold property. People had property. They sold it and brought it in. In fact, there was this one guy, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who sold what we believe historically was actually the whole island, like a big piece of land. Um, and, he did, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. like Almost like the uniqueness of it that Luke's able to name a name and say, you know, in fact, there was this one monster gift that came in, blah, blah, blah and then it comes to Ananias and Sapphira and, and they sell something and they lay it and, and Peter kind of checks with Sapphira because he says hey how, how much did you sell that for and she tells him and he was like no nope. so I think the real sin is that they were inauthentic a lack of, of authenticity they presented a picture of themselves that was not accurate They, in essence, came in and said, look at us. Look how giving we are. Look how generous we're being. Look how, you know, how holy and close to God, whatever you want to call it, we are. Like, and it was the image they're presenting by laying this thing down. Yes, we've sold this land and given it to you. They didn't come in and say, we want to give a gift, but honestly, we're a little nervous about the future. We're going to hold some back, but hopefully this can help. Like that, that is, is really, if, if they had been authentic with what was really going on with their heart, that's what they would have said. We're going to keep some back just in case, but we do want to help. We do want to contribute. Here's part of what we have. We're not in a place where we can feel like we can give everything, but we can certainly give this part. And I think that would have obviously been accepted. That would have been a beautiful thing. But they wanted to look more Christian, more Christian, than they really were. They wanted to put up a front, some kind of Christian front that wasn't real. And this is one of the strange dichotomies in our faith where we find out that authenticity brings life. And like there's that story um, where Jesus uh, is talking about the, the Pharisee, I believe it is, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he sees them on a hill praying. And the Pharisee is like, Thank you, God, that you have made me the way you've made me, that I'm not I'm not like a dog or like this. He even says a woman that I'm not a woman. That would be terrible. Uh, or like this tax collector over here. I tithe all my stuff like I'm and he's given God credit for it. I mean, in a, in a funky sense, it's still he's not taking credit for it. It's like, thank you, God, that you've made me awesome. Um, and then there's this tax collector who says he can't even lift his eyes up to heaven that he just can't even pick his head up because he's so ashamed. And he beats his breast and says, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus sees this authenticity. He sees this realness in this person who just totally accepts who he is. And Jesus says, I tell you, that man went home today justified. Something in that authentic moment, in that owning who I am moment, led to life. Jesus said, that man went home justified. He went home with life. Well, oh my goodness. Me and technology. Authenticity is a fundamental part of our faith system. It's, it's almost the core of our faith system. And that's, again, this is why we go back to the cross. Because you can't go to the cross as anything else other than yourself. There is no, there is no going to the cross acting more Christian than you are that's not what the cross is about the cross is where we are all sinners every single one of us AA kind of tapped into this the, the two Christian guys that started aA way back when that's why they start every AA meeting with hi my name is Chris and I'm an alcoholic because he says most of us are like I'm Chris and I'm a lawyer I'm such as I'm a doctor he was like if we can start the meetings with everybody just owning I'm an alcoholic it puts us all on the same level now in this room, we're all this one thing that's what the cross does hi I'm Chris and I'm a sinner and it doesn't matter what you've done it doesn't matter what your sin it doesn't matter if it's different or, or weirder or better or more socially acceptable than my sin because we're both sinners and at the cross it's hi my name is Chris and I'm a sinner at the beginning of at the beginning of our prayers to the people a lot of people think it's morbid that we that we do the prayer of contrition at the beginning of prayer of the people most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Those are powerful words to me. And I want them in every service we have. That that's, that's where we start. That we're just all sinners. That we've blown it. Again, some of you are like, man, why you got to focus on sin so much? It's... Like, it's so dark. Why can't we talk about how awesome just God's love and how awesome He is? And all that is true. And the fact that I'm unlovable makes it more true. Like, the fact that I admit that I am just a broken sinner makes God's love all the more glorious. And we don't have... I mean, it's, it's healthy to talk about our... Individual sins and to confess, but that's not even the issue. I don't have to stand up here and talk about this sin or that sin or blah blah because we have a tendency to say, Yeah, man, that sin, poof, those guys. And we forget that that's all of us. So, what do we do with this? How do we respond in authenticity? We start by recognizing the church needs you. The real you. Not the, not the you that tries to fit in and act Christian or act, you know, the way you think church people are supposed to act. The one who has a Sunday you and then a Monday you. We need just you. Broken, unbelieving, doubting, stumbling, tripping, falling You. And we, and, that's, and when you bring that you, that authentic you, not that, here I sold everything for you. Like, that's not the you we need. We don't need Ananias and Sapphira. We need you. We need the you that says, I'm afraid to give. I'm here and I'm part of this, but I'm afraid uh, Just where we are right now, I, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to. I don't know if I have enough. And we might challenge you, to say, "Give it a shot, try it, blah, blah, whatever." But if you decide not to, that's you, and that's who we want. Moms, if you're struggling with your kids and they're screaming during worship, and there's a twinge of you that's like embarrassed, like, "Oh man, I'm the only one with you." No, we want you. We want your kids. We want the real thing. Not this, I have to act like I've got it all together because all the other moms seem to have it all together. No, we want you. If you don't, if you don't know something, I was talking to my boys about this uh, 25 years ago when I first started walking with Christ. I had a guy in my life who named Butch who used to answer my questions. And I... He used, to, he used to tell me, that he told me this years later, that he would, on his way home, go, God, I've got nothing left. If that kid asked me one more question, I'm just going to send him away. I've got no more answers. I can't do it anymore. And, and he would walk in the door. I had this notepad I used to fit in my, and I knew nothing. And I didn't know enough to know that it was embarrassing not to know. So he would say something about the Jews, and I'd go, what's a Jew? And he would look at me like, are you kidding me? And I was like, I don't know who a Jew is. And he was like, okay, but the children of Abraham. I was like, I don't know Abraham. And he was like, are you, how do we, how could you, okay, let's start at the beginning. And he would just start teaching. And he would hit something and I would say, I don't know what that is. If you don't know anything, don't pretend to know it. Don't like, man, everybody here seems to know this stuff. Say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have a clue. Never heard of that. And that's okay. Because we want you. We want the real you. Don't don't rob us of what the real you can bring to the table by being a you that looks like you think we're supposed to look because there's something in that real you that we need. There's something in that real you that belongs here that 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 we need at the table. Don't don't rob us of that. I can't say That this is why it happened. But it's something for your imagination. I'm just going to hang out there. Is what if Ananias and Sapphira don't die in this moment? What if they get away with it? What if they give this gift and everybody is like, Oh, you guys are awesome. And their name goes up next to Barnabas as, as these people who sold land and gave it all. And everybody's like, Man, that's Ananias and Sapphira. They they sold a big chunk of land and gave it all to the church. They're amazing. And and the community grows closer and closer. And Ananias and Sapphira can never feel part of it because they've got this secret in their heart that all this attention they're getting and all this, the way people look at them is not real because those people don't know what they're really like. Like what's that look like six months down the road when Ananias and Sapphira are living with this, with this secret. When they're like the, the Pharisee on the hill, and they're not willing to say, this is who I am. Could it be that this quick death was more merciful than the slow, agonizing, spiritual death of being fake? Could it be that God said, That's, you're not going to like where that goes. I can't say that's what the story's about. I can't say that's the end of it. But I can say I can't think of very many good roads if they get away with this. I can't think they're in a good place in this tight community that's being real and being authentic and seeing God do amazing things. I can't I can't imagine living in that community with that kind of secret.